You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We are finishing up this morning the Gospel of John, Chapter 3. We've been coming in for a landing in John 3 for quite some time, sort of circling the ground, waiting to touch down and finally finish up this chapter. John, Chapter 3, we're only going to cover one verse today. It will shock many of you. Verse 36. Verse 36. We will read it together and then we'll open our time in prayer. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's pray together. Our Father, your word to us is clear. We thank you that you have spoken, and we pray that you would give to us receptive and willing hearts to hear and to heed and to obey that which you have spoken to us. Thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together as your people here, and we pray that you would meet your words in this text to the deep needs of our hearts and our souls, encourage us, Comfort us, convict us, and may we walk away from here changed by your word and the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Every once in a while in the Bible, you come across very simple texts. Uh, texts where the gospel and all of its implications are laid out in such plain, simple, direct, unmistakable language. Texts which almost scream out to us to believe and to heed them. Texts that are so plain that the gospel... And what it means to believe and what it means to disbelieve, the consequences of belief and the consequences of disbelief are spelled out for us in such plain, unmistakable language that it screams to us to do something with what is before us. And that is the type of text that we have here in John chapter 3, verse 16. And you may ask, is it really necessary that we should cover the rudimentary elements of the gospel again? Because in John chapter 3, we've seen a number of these texts. Back at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus' words to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then Jesus' words in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes on Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And that the reason for our unbelief is because we love darkness rather than light. And Jesus said the consequences of our unbelief is that we would perish. And so we have a number of these very clear, very simple, very straightforward gospel texts where we really don't get any further than the rudimentary, elementary, basic, foundational principles of the gospel. Belief and unbelief, life and death, life and perishing, light and darkness, believers and unbelievers. And so you might ask, is it really necessary that we would cover again and rehash the gospel? I mean, can't we just get beyond the gospel? Can't we get to something deeper, something better, something more profound than just the gospel again? And really to ask that question is to answer that question, isn't it? The answer to that is no. Because listen, if, if you're going to walk your Christian life, you're never going to get beyond the gospel. You never get beyond it. Everything we do here as a church, everything we teach, everything we preach, everything in the New Testament, the Old Testament, it's all about one thing. It's the gospel. The gospel is something I preach to myself every day. I wake up every day, I remind myself, you are a sinner, you are a lawbreaker, you've been saved entirely by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is not only what has saved you, that is what has secured you, and that is what is going to sanctify you today. That's the gospel. I never get beyond that. The gospel is what answers the forgiveness problem of my past. 
It gives me a perspective on my present and it gives me a hope for my future. You never get beyond the gospel. And hearing the gospel and the simple passages that deal with the gospel do a lot to sanctify us, to inspire in us awe and marvel at the grace of God. Hearing verses like chapter 3, verse 16, that he who believes the Son has life and he who does not believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Hearing verses like that does something to us. It sanctifies us as it causes us to rest solely in Christ. And it reminds us again of that which it, of that which gives us assurance of our salvation. It also sanctifies us in the sense that it inspires in us an awe and a wonder at the grace of God and the simplicity of salvation and the invitation that is offered to us, the command that is given to us in the gospel and what the gospel gives to us. It ought to comfort the believer. It ought to concern the unbeliever, verses like three, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. So, no, we can't just get beyond it, and it's appropriate that we take a few minutes at least to remind ourselves of the basic fundamental elements of the gospel that we find in chapter 3, verse 36, and kind of expand upon it and expound upon it and see what the implications of it are. There's a lot packed into that little verse, and I was actually tempted to make two messages out of this passage, but we're just going to go through and we're just going to deal with, basically, in verse 36, John, with an economy of words, divides humanity into two groups, believers and unbelievers. Two different choices, belief and unbelief, and two different destinies, life and the wrath of God. Isn't that wonderful? Just in those simple, straightforward words, two groups of people, two choices that they make, and two destinies that they end up in because of their choices. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, chapter 3, verse 36. Read it again. He who believes in the Son of God has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now listen, friends, that really is the logical conclusion to everything we've seen in chapter 3 so far. It's the logical conclusion to everything that John the Baptist has been saying since verse 30, well, actually verse 27, to go back even further, when his disciples came to him and said, Look, we're concerned because more people are following Jesus than are following you. And he said, I must decrease. He must increase. And here are all the reasons why I must decrease. And here are all the reasons why I must, or he must increase and why I must decrease. And then he gave five reasons. And this is the fifth of them in verse 36. Five reasons why Jesus Christ is preeminent. First, because he comes from heaven and he who is from heaven is above all. Second, because he speaks the words of truth because he was sent from God. Third, he has the spirit without measure. That was verse 34. Fourth, He is sovereign. He is the sovereign King, verse 35. The Father has loved the Son and has given all things into His hand, so that all things, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, things visible and invisible, whether in heaven or on earth, all things are subject to Him. So it logically follows then, verse 36, that if He is from heaven and if He speaks the words of truth and if He has the Spirit of God without measure and if He is the sovereign King of creation, then it must be so that he who believes in Him will have eternal life And he who rejects him will suffer the wrath of God for all of eternity. You see, verse 36 is a marvelous conclusion to everything John has said so far. It's also a marvelous conclusion to chapter 3, all of chapter 3, because chapter 3 has been about belief. It's been about belief. Jesus' condemnation of Nicodemus because Nicodemus would not believe him when he said, you must be born again. Jesus spelled out the consequences of unbelief in chapter 3, verses 16 and 18. The reasons for unbelief in 19 through 21, that it boils down to people loving darkness more than they love light. They will not come to the light because they hate the light and they love their darkness. So they reject the light and will not come to the light. And instead they they dwell in their darkness and they love their darkness. So that's the reasons for unbelief. 
So chapter 3 finishes up with this plea to you and I. This promise of comfort and one that should cause concern to unbelievers. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It deserves our very sober reflection and consideration. So I want you to notice, first of all, the theme of belief. That's not something new to us this morning. This has been the theme, as I said, of all of chapter 3. It actually began back in chapter 2. You remember verses 23 to 25 when it says that a multitude or a lot of people, a great number of people believed on Jesus when they saw the signs that he was doing in Jerusalem. But John says Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. He saw in their hearts and he knew that their belief was a shallow belief. It was a fickle belief. It was an ever-changing belief. It was a belief that came to him because of the miracles. They saw the signs that he did and they believed on him for that reason. And we find out later on in chapter 6 that the multitudes that followed him, when they saw the signs, when they began to hear him teach the strong things, they said, no, not really for us. And they left him. Jesus never committed himself to the shallow believers, those who believed based on the signs, who would leave him based on the teachings. And Jesus condemned Nicodemus for his unbelief. And so then we get to the end of chapter 3, and we are begged to believe. Now, what does it mean to believe? And to whom, who are we willing, who, who are we asked to believe? And to whom are we asked to entrust ourselves when we believe? What is belief? Is belief just mental assent? Is it sort of tipping the hat to Jesus and saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. We're Americans. We all believe in Jesus. Except for about 1% of us. But pretty much everybody I know believes that Jesus lived. Is that what John means when he says believe? Because he uses in this gospel the term belief in two different ways. And we saw this back in chapter 2. He uses the term belief to describe those who made a mental assent. He also uses the term belief in another way, which means to entrust or to embrace, to trust or entrust yourself to somebody. And that's two different things. One is just a mental assent that says, I believe certain orthodox things about Jesus. I believe that He is the Son of God. I believe that He came into the world. I believe that He was born of a virgin, that He died on a cross, and that He rose again. I can give mental assent to all of those truths, and I still have not distinguished myself from the demons, because every demon in existence believes that much. But what is saving belief? Saving belief is not mental assent, and it's not tipping your hat to Jesus and saying, yeah, I believe He existed, yeah, I believe that He came, and yeah, I believe that He died and rose again. Saving belief is bowing the knee to that sovereign. Saving belief is entrusting myself to Him and saying, I am going to turn from my sin and cast all of my hope, all of my expectation, all of my confidence on this one person to save me. That is saving belief. That is different than mental assent, which is just simply an intellectual belief. What type of belief is it that John asks of us or demands of us? What type of belief is it that brings eternal life? It is the belief that entrusts oneself entirely to Jesus and says, I will not trust my own good works. I will not trust what I do. I will not trust my own abilities to save me. I cast my hope, my confidence, my faith, and my belief entirely on somebody who came from heaven, spoke the words of God, has the Spirit without measure, and is the sovereign of all of the universe to trust, to to save me. That is saving belief. That is saving faith and saving confidence. Nothing short of that is able to save. 
Now I want you to notice a couple of things about what that are absent here when John says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you notice there that there is no mention of anything other than belief? They say, but Jim, you've talked about repentance. How does repentance fit into this? Repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. It's two, two elements of the same response to the gospel. We repent and we believe. Our saving belief is repenting belief, and our right repentance is a believing repentance. It's not repentance alone that saves us. It's not belief alone that saves us. It is repenting, believing faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. That is not a work. Repentance is not a work. Belief is not a work. Both of them are gifts from God. Both of them are necessary for salvation. You cannot be saved if you will repent but not believe, and you cannot be saved if you will believe, but you will not turn from your sin. So what is necessary is a believing, repenting faith that entrusts itself entirely to Christ and embraces Him in faith. But nothing else beyond that repenting, saving belief is necessary. Do you notice that no mention is made of what you do or what you must do to continue to be saved? No mention is made of what you and I have to do to secure ourselves in our salvation, to continue in our salvation, to secure the ultimate outcome of our salvation. No mention is made of any of that. No mention is made of Sabbath-keeping or law-keeping or giving or serving or good works or good deeds. No mention is made of any of those things. Why? Because saving faith results in all of those things, but saving faith must come first. Saving faith is necessary at the very beginning, and the works are not. Now, if you're the type of person that you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, okay, Jim, but here's how I view it. I do my best and Jesus does the rest. He's really good as far as he goes. I sort of do all of my works, all of my activities, all of my serving, my repenting, my believing, my trusting, my obedience, my this act of righteousness, my that act of righteousness. I do all of these things and I know that I'm going to fall short of God's ultimate standard of perfection because I'm a sinner. And you see, that's where Jesus comes in and sort of takes up the slack. If that describes your faith, friends, then you have not yet savingly believed on Jesus Christ. You are still in your sin. Because believing faith says, all of those things aside, I am trusting 100% solely and only in the only one who is able to save me. You also notice that no mention is made of any exclusions to this offer. Who is able to believe? Who is who is who is the offer of belief and receive life open to? It's open to all. It doesn't depend on how vile of a sinner you are, how much sin you have in your background. He said, Jim, I, 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 you don't know me. Man, I come from a horrible past. I was a drunkard. I was a liar. I was a blasphemer. I was a thief. I was an adulterer. I was a fornicator. I was a homosexual. I was a this. I was a that. It does not matter the scope of your sin, the breadth of your sin, the depth of your sin. None of those things matter. None of those things will cut you off from from, from eternal life. The only thing that will cut you off from eternal life is unbelief. That is it, because God delights in saving sinners, vile sinners. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. And Paul says, why did God do that? He did this so that I might be an example of those who will believe on him to eternal life. What do you learn from the salvation of a man like Saul of Tarsus? That no sinner is too vile to be saved. No sinner is too vile to be saved. It does not say he who has not sinned past the point of no return and believes. It does not say that he who has heaped up too much sin but believes. It says he who believes in the Son has eternal life. If Hitler had repented before he died, he would go to heaven. That offend you? It offends a lot of people. And you know why? 
Because they say, why should Hitler go to heaven and not my my neighbor who's a good guy? God delights in saving vile people. Some of us realize just how vile we are. Others sitting here haven't quite realized just how vile you are just yet. But God delights in saving vile people. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, present possession, present possession. In the New Testament, always, especially in the book of John, you find it over and over again. We come back to this over and over again. He who believes in the Son has present possession, eternal life. Not will someday get eternal life. Not may hope to attain eternal life. Not will someday receive eternal life. And we're not waiting for eternal life. Friends, listen. If you have trusted Christ and been saved and been born again and been given a new heart with new affections and new desires, if you have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, you have been given already and you currently possess right now eternal life. You're not waiting for it. I used to know a dear old saintly man who used to pray, Lord, we thank you that you will give to us eternal life. I never wanted to correct him because he was a godly man whom I loved and respected dearly. But I always, when I heard him pray that, I always thought, it's just, it's, I understand what's being said. Heaven is what he meant. But technically, we're not waiting to receive eternal life. It's my present possession right now. It's my present possession right now. When did I get it? At the moment that I was born again, at regeneration. That's what regeneration is. Now, those who believe that you can lose your salvation, they have an inadequate view, not only of salvation, but of regeneration. If you understand what regeneration is, then you say, how is it that the life that was given to me when I believed, which the Bible calls eternal life, how can that result in death? How can that result in eternal life? If it's eternal life, it is what? Eternal. That should be patently obvious. If it's eternal life, it's eternal. I can never lose that. I can never forfeit that. I can never give that up. I can never reverse that. It's eternal. There's no such thing as an eternal life that sort of fritters out and peters away. Charles Spurgeon said, I wouldn't give two trumpets for that temporary salvation that some proclaim, which floats the soul for a period of time, then ebbs away to apostasy. That's not salvation. That's not what the New Testament teaches. I have been given life, and the life that I received is everlasting and eternal life. It began at the moment of my regeneration. It continues even through today. It will continue through my dementia, my Alzheimer's, and my eventual death. And it will continue for all of eternity. It will never ebb and flow. It will never fade away. And I'm not waiting to get it. I have it right now. And it will and must go on forever because it is by nature eternal. It is eternal life. Those who believe in the Son, have placed their faith in the Son, have eternal life. Now I want to be clear about something. And let me correct something just in case you're wondering. Does my belief, this is going to be a trick question, I'll tell you at the front, does my belief save me? Does my belief save me? Now, in some sense, you're saying, well, yes, it is. But what is it about my belief that saves? It's not my belief itself. It is the object of my belief that saves. It's not my act of believing that brings me eternal life. Otherwise, I could believe in anything. I could believe in a leprechaun to save me. To, at, the, at the sake, at the risk of being silly, let me ask you this question. If you believe in a leprechaun for your salvation, can you or will you be saved? I say, no, that's silly. Of course it's silly. Well, what if I really believe on the leprechaun? What if I sincerely, with all my heart, believe on the leprechaun? What if I cast all of my hope and faith on that leprechaun to save me? Can that leprechaun save me? No. But what if my belief is really genuine and sincere? I really go after that belief. 
Can my belief in the leprechaun save me? No. Because it's not belief itself. It is the object of my belief. It is the one in whom I believe. It is because I am believing in the one who came from heaven who speaks words of truth who is the sovereign of all of the universe. It is because I am casting my faith on him that I am saved. It's not the act of believing itself. It's not the power in belief as if belief is some mystical thing or faith has some powerful force. It is the one in whom I have placed my confidence that I am trusting to save me that actually does the saving. Belief is the means by which that regeneration, that faith becomes mine. Belief is the means by which that salvation is granted to me. Belief is the evidence of that salvation and regeneration. But the belief itself does not save me. The one in whom I have believed saves me. That is why I say to you, if you are trusting one-tenth of one percent in your own effort to either save you or secure you for your salvation, you will perish for eternity. Why? Because you are not trusting in the one, the only one who is able to save you. And you might as well trust a leprechaun as trust yourself for salvation. No matter how sincere your belief is in your good works or your own abilities, you cannot be saved if you will not cast yourself entirely upon Jesus Christ. He who believes in the Son has present possession, eternal life. But, here's the flip side of it. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, you know what I, when I read through verse 36, you know what I expect the last half of verse 36 to say? The first half says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. I expect the last half to say, he who does not believe in the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But what instead do I read? Do you read? He who does not what? Obey the Son will not see life. Interesting that the words obey and belief are used as synonyms interchangeably in this verse. Why is that? Is our salvation based upon our own obedience? Just said it's not, right? It's not based upon my obedience. It's based upon Christ's obedience. Christ's obedience to the Father, the will of the Father. Christ's obedience to the law. Christ being willing to obey even to the point of death. Even death on the cross. It's His obedience that saves me. So why is it that John says, He who believes has life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life? They are used interchangeably in this context. Why is that? Two reasons. First, because in the New Testament... Belief is often characterized as obedience, and the two are used interchangeably together. You see, when God commands all men everywhere to repent, and He says, I have fixed a day on which I will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ, therefore, repent and believe the gospel. That's the command, the command of God. Repent and believe the gospel. When you repent and you believe the gospel, it is an act of obedience. It is an act of obedience to God. It is an act of obedience to Jesus Christ. Because He has commanded us to turn from our sin and believe the gospel. And in so doing, we are obeying the Son. So believing the gospel is an act of obedience to the Son. It is saving faith, bowing the knee to Him as sovereign King and saying, You are Lord, You are Savior, I'm done with me, I'm entrusting myself entirely to You. I belong to You. That is an act of obedience. Belief is an act of obedience. In Acts chapter 6, it says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. What does that mean, obedient to the faith? It means they were getting saved. And see, here's how the New Testament describes salvation. The New Testament describes salvation as becoming obedient to the faith, or obedient to Jesus, or obeying the Son. That is salvation. It's not our act of obedience that makes us saved. But the act of believing is itself an act of obedience to the Son. 
In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience to the faith among the Gentiles. Romans chapter 15, resulting in his, his, his ministry, he says, resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Romans chapter 16, verse 26, Paul says, The gospel had been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Hebrews 5, verse 9, Christ having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. 1 Peter 1, 2 says, We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 asks this question, and listen how, listen to how unbelief is described. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 says that Christ will come out, come back, return, and he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. Those who do not obey the gospel. To reject, to unbelieve, to not believe, is to disobey the gospel. The gospel message is not an invitation to be accepted. Like a birthday party. Receive an invitation in the mail. Yeah, I can go or I can not go. It's not an invitation to be accepted. It is a command to be obeyed. Not an invitation to be accepted. We command men everywhere to repent and to believe on him who will come back and judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. That is what we preach. That is what the gospel is. Repent and believe. So to repent and to believe is in itself an act of obedience. Secondly, obedience is the mark of those who have believed. Unbelievers are marked by disobedience. Believers are marked by obedience. Before I got saved, I was a child of disobedience. And my life would be characterized like this. Uninterrupted disobedience to God. Uninterrupted. Never once before I got saved was my life ever interrupted by an act of obedience to God. Every good thing I did, every good thing I wanted to do was still in itself an act of disobedience because of the source from which it came. So my unbelieving life was a life of uninterrupted disobedience to God. But not so as a believer. Having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and now come to Him by faith for salvation, I have obeyed the Son and my life is now characterized by interrupted obedience. And make sure that I say this right. Interrupted obedience. One, uninterrupted disobedience before salvation. After salvation, interrupted by obedience. Sorry. Interrupted obedience. I live an obedient life now. Not perfectly. Do I still sin? Of course I still sin. Sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. I feel horrible about it. I turn from it. I repent of it. I hate it. I hate my sin. I don't dive into it. I fall into it. So my life of obedience to the Lord is now interrupted by sin. It's now an interrupted life of obedience instead of an uninterrupted life of disobedience. Those who are saved are marked and characterized by obedience. Show me somebody who says, I have believed on Jesus Christ, who lives a disobedient life, and I will show you a false convert, somebody who thinks they are saved and are and, and is not. Because obedience is the mark of those who have obeyed the Son for salvation. We strive for obedience. We love obedience. We desire to be obedient. That is what we want to do because that is what marks us. We once were children of disobedience, but not anymore. Now we are children of obedience. So those who do not obey the Son will not see life this is horrible. Sounds horrible. The wrath of God abides on them. The wrath of God abides on them. Present tense abides currently. They are condemned already. Unbelievers are not waiting to be condemned. 
They're not waiting for their condemnation. They are under condemnation. They're not waiting to see wrath. They are under wrath. It is not proper to say that they will someday face the wrath of God. Actually, properly said, they will someday face the consequences of the wrath of God. They will someday visibly see and experience the wrath of God. But unbelievers, those who disobey the Son, those who reject the Son and will not turn to the Son for life, right now they abide under the wrath of God. Currently, that is their present possession. Our present possession is eternal life. Their present possession is the wrath of God. It hangs over the head of an unbeliever like a storm cloud waiting to pour down justice, like a guillotine just waiting to be released. They are under currently the wrath of God. You say, but they're fat and they enjoy life and they don't suffer harm and they enjoy all the pleasures of life. Some of them are rich. They have no worries, no temptations. They don't agonize over sin. They don't suffer like the righteous do. Yet, the wrath of God is over them. By His mercy, all they receive right now is a delay in the execution of the justice that is hanging over their head because they are under, currently, the wrath of God. Some people don't like this. They say, especially on Father's Day, I want to hear about love and joy and gentleness and kindness. I came to church expecting a big group hug, and all I get is talk about the wrath of God, and I have to hear about the wrath of God on Father's Day? Is that right? We prefer a God with no wrath. In our fallenness, we create in our minds a God who will turn a blind eye to sin. But think of the ramifications of denying that God has a real wrath. Can you honestly say that God is good if He does not at the same time have wrath towards sin and towards sinners? Can we say that God is good? If God is good, then He must hate everything that is evil. If He truly loves goodness, loves righteousness, loves holiness, loves truth, then He must hate all of the opposites of those things. Can you describe a judge in heaven or a God in heaven who is willing to turn a blind eye to rapists, adulterers, murderers, fornicators, thieves, homosexuals, effeminate, drunkards, swindlers, liars, blasphemers, gossips, turn a blind eye to all of that and say, I'm just not going to care. I'm not going to let that get my ire up. I'm not going to punish that. I'm just going to pretend that none of that exists. Would you call that good if your wife or your daughter or your child was murdered and raped and brutally beaten by somebody and you stepped into a courtroom and the judge said, you know, I'm just going to turn a blind eye to all of that. Would you stand up and walk away and say, what a good judge. I'm going to vote for him next time he comes up for election. That was one of the goodest, not a right word I know, kindest, most gracious acts I have ever in my life seen. How good he must be. What a, I want him to babysit my kids. Would you say that? You would say, what a travesty of goodness that was. If we believe that God is good, then He must be filled with indignation and hatred toward everything that is evil. Filled with wrath. By wrath, by the way, we do not mean some outburst of anger, some uncontrolled, passionate uh, 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 response to evil and wickedness. We don't mean that. It is, I love the way one writer described it, the wrath of God is God's holiness set on fire. His holiness set on fire. It is God's purposeful, intentional, directional intention to deal with and punish sin and to right every wrong. Because He is good, He is filled with wrath toward those who are wicked and evil. Because He is loving, He is filled with wrath toward the sinner. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge who is filled with indignation all day long. 
You look out the sinful world around you and all the wickedness, the depravity, and the injustice that goes on. Does it fill you with indignation? fills me with indignation. I wish that righteousness and justice would be done. How much more a holy and righteous God? He is a righteous judge, and He is filled with indignation every day toward the wicked. Every day. Because He is good. Because He is loving. You would never say of me if I were to sit by dispassionately while my wife and children were abused and beaten and hurt. You would never say that I was a loving individual toward them. And God, if He loves Himself, which He does, and God, if He loves His children, which He does, is filled with indignation toward everything and all people who thwart and hate and revile and persecute and lash out against them and threaten their good. He is filled with indignation because He is loving, because He is good. It is a necessary quality of God. Necessary to His holiness, necessary to His throne, which is built on righteousness and justice. And because He is the just judge of all the world, He must by necessity also be filled with indignation and wrath. If you remove the wrath of God, all you're left with is an impotent, lame, silly, weak God who is unable and unwilling and does not care about punishing sin. You can never say that He is good. You can never say that all the rights of of this earth will be, or all the wrongs of this earth will someday be righted. Because God is good and because God is loving, He is filled with indignation toward the wicked all day long. The Gospel proclamation demands that God be filled with wrath, by the way. Uh, To quote Alistair Begg, if you do not have a real wrath and a real, real anger, then the biblical notions of of uh, grace and long-suffering and of mercy are robbed of their meaning. All those words, the idea of mercy and long-suffering and grace, what do they mean if God really is not filled with wrath? What have I been saved from if God's not a wrathful God? If there's not a real wrath directed against me for my real sin, then what is it that I have been delivered from? If you do away with the concept of wrath, what does that leave salvation to mean? You know what it means? Having your best life now. God is your motivational coach. God wants you to have a good life, get a good parking space, enjoy all of the wealth and the health and the luxuries that this world... He's there to kind of come beside you, a big papa, to put his arm around you and grant you all your wishes and really get you going and make you have a good day. That's what salvation boils down to. You know how, you're, you, know how you get a salvation like that? You remove the concept of wrath. What is it that I have been delivered from if God is not wrathful towards sin? Your salvation, in your salvation, God has delivered you from God. God was the one who had you in his crosshairs. God is the one who was angry was angry with you because of your sin all day long. God is the one who was storing up wrath for the day of judgment toward you. Every sin you committed was heaping up wrath for the day of judgment. God in salvation has delivered you from himself. The son stepped in and took the wrath of the father. God delivered you from God for God all to the glory of God. That is what salvation is. You've been delivered from a real, real wrath because He is filled with anger toward the wicked all day long. Now, does this? if you and I were to read in this passage, verse 36, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against vile people, criminals, people in jails, pedophiles, child molesters, all of those things, we'd read through this and we'd say, yeah, of course God is wrathful toward those folks. Of course, God is angry with them. They say, but God is angry with you too if you're a sinner and you're an unbeliever. Oh, no, 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 Jim, you don't understand. I, I've, I've gone to church since I was a kid and I'm there every Sunday and I never absent myself from the services and I sing praises and I listen to the word and I got a Bible by my, by my uh, bedside table and I dust, dust it off every once in a while and read a few verses. You have no idea just how righteous I am. I can understand God being, being uh, angry toward vile and the worst of criminals, but not toward me. 
Not toward me. But what does the text say? He who does not obey the Son. You see, that can be the most outwardly righteous individual that you've ever met, the most religious person you've ever seen. A man like Nicodemus, who outdid us in terms of outward righteousness any day of the week, yet he needed to be born again. He was outwardly righteous. You can be religious, you can be devout, you can be sincere, you can be genuine, and you can be all of that and wrong. And the one thing, the one thing that will keep you out of heaven, you can go all so far you can go. The one thing that will keep you out of heaven is your unbelief. Your unwillingness to bow the knee to the Savior and say, I'm done with me. I need salvation. I turn from my sin, and I'm going to believe on the one who is able to save me. It's not just the most vile criminals that need salvation or under God's wrath. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against liars and thieves and blasphemers and fornicators and adulterers at heart. All of us, anybody who is unbelieving, is under the wrath of God until they repent and turn to Christ. Now, what is the end of all of this? It should do two things. It should comfort those of us who have been saved to understand and to realize, I have believed on the Son, and I have right now currently possessed eternal life. I will never, I, Jim Osmond, will never see the frown of my Heavenly Father. Never. Never. I will never experience not a hint, not a shadow, not a whiff of His eternal wrath for my sin. Why is that? Because all of His wrath toward me for my sin was put on Christ. All of it. Not some of it. Not most of it. All of it. So that I can say, I stand today completely righteous in the sight of God. And I will, not by my own doing, but by His doing, it is His righteousness that is given to me, and I will never see the wrath of God for my sin. You know how comforting that is to be able to say that? I have right now eternal life, and that will go on forever, and I will never see my Father frown at me. Never. Never experience His wrath. But it also ought to concern those who are outside of Christ. Those who have never trusted in Christ and disobeyed are disobeying the Son by not believing. How much hatred does a sinner have to have in his heart to be able to say to Christ, I would rather rot in hell than honor you by trusting you and believing in you? How much hatred does that express? A hatred for the light that is almost unspeakable and a love for darkness that is almost unspeakable. If you have never obeyed the Son, then I'm telling you this, every day you have ever gone to bed and put your head on your pillow, you have put your head on your pillow and fallen asleep under the frown of a God who is angry with you. And every day you have lived without Christ, you have heaped up wrath for the day of judgment. And every day your file grows thicker and thicker and thicker for the court of heaven when the justice of God will come down upon you and you will see and you will experience the full force of the wrath of God against your sin for all of eternity because you have heaped up an eternity worth of sin. So I beg of you and I plead of you, if you are sitting here today and you have never trusted Christ for your Savior, you need to do that today. Because if you don't, you will go to sleep tonight under the frown of a God who is angry with you. You will wake up tomorrow morning to face another day against the wrath of a God who is angry with you. And you have no guarantee that you will see either tonight or tomorrow morning. Today is the day of salvation. It is my honest prayer, and I know I can say this of Dave and Jess as well. It is my prayer and my hope and my constant beg to God that nobody who sits under the pulpit and the teaching of this church will ever enter eternity under the wrath of God against them for their sin. If you do, it will not be because you have not been warned. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are somber words. They remind us of your feeling towards sin. We thank you that Christ has borne the penalty for our sin.
entirely and fully on the cross. That offer is there for salvation. The invitation is there, the command to repent and to believe the gospel. We thank you that you have not excluded any from that, nor have you uh, worked in such a way as to make it unavailable to us. We thank you that salvation, atonement, forgiveness of sins is available in Christ even today. And I ask God that anybody sitting here who has never trusted in Christ may do so and escape the wrath of God through the punishment uh, by by having the punishment for their sin taken upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace in him. Thank you for an atonement and a salvation which is so efficacious and so perfect and so sufficient to save to the uttermost all those who will come to Christ and be saved. Thank you that he has been made perfect and has become a source of salvation to all who obey him. We do so. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.